The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Jesus prayed for his disciples. And then he said, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. Amen. There's a small church in South Dakota that's one of my favorite churches. In fact, I think it's the most beautiful one in, in all of that diocese. The first time I went into it, <clears throat> it, I was struck by the fact that everything clicked. When you walk in and you step into that space, everything fits. Everything is just right. The color, the proportion. You just know that an architect who knew what he or she was doing had their hand in that church. And this, what was interesting about it was that it was a renovation. Uh, it, the old church was uh, very much like our chapel with a choir and then the altar up at the east end, far away from the people. And at some point, this congregation decided that they would change that around so that the altar was closer to the people. So they moved the altar into the space the choir had been in. And the choir had moved behind the altar. <laughs> And then they took away the communion rail. Well, I was preaching in that church one Sunday, uh, a number of years later, and noticed that the communion rail was not there. So I decided to talk about that, and it fit with the sermon that I was preaching. And I reminded people that sometimes we get so focused on things that are of little importance that we lose sight of what their real meaning is. The altar rail for so many has become a place of devotion, a kind of a sign of where we come and kneel before God, especially in, to receive communion. But in fact, the institution of the idea of having altar rails came during the uh, time of, Ar of the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Bishop Laud, Archbishop Laud. And at that time, he decided that all churches should have an altar rail, a rail around the altar, in order to keep the animals out so they wouldn't defile the altar. <laughs> then over time, of course, that became very important in the life of the church. 
So now any discussion of removing an altar rail often becomes very heated. Well, I preached about that, much like that, that Sunday morning, and thought nothing of it. After the service, a number of people came up to me and very excitedly said, did you see what happened? And of course I didn't. I had no idea what had happened. They said, Mr. So-and-so received communion. Well, apparently there was a man in that congregation who had not received communion from the day that altar rail had been taken out. Now, I would not have preached about that if I had known he was in the congregation, I guarantee you. But that sermon needed to be preached for him, and perhaps not just for him, but for others there as well. We can become so focused on things that are of little importance that they become the objects of division. Today, we hear from John's Gospel, I ask not only on behalf of these, that is, the disciples that were with him, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Today I want to talk about unity especially, and also peace. And I think it's important that we talk about it because uh, it's good to talk about these things and reflect on them when you're experiencing them, when you're in the midst of unity and peace. Because the time may come, even in this congregation, when we may be challenged And it's important for us to remember that one of the highest callings that we have as Christians is the calling to be one, to be united, and to have peace in our midst. The words that I just read and what Nick read this morning are the first place really in, in any of the Gospels that we hear Jesus speak specifically about unity. And it's interesting to me that it's not in a sermon But rather, it's in a prayer. This is the great high priestly prayer of Jesus that takes up most of the 17th chapter of John. So peace is not something and and unity is not something that we strive for or work for necessarily as much as it is a gift given by God. And so we can pray for that. We can pray for unity. We can pray for peace. And I think all of you know what how mysteriously sometimes unity comes out of strife and how peace all of a sudden can occur in the midst of turmoil. So I think it's important for us this morning to to recognize that peace and unity are truly gifts of God. But we also must have an attitude that allows us to receive those gifts. I think that uh, so many times in the church we... We work for unity. You know, we, we actually contend for unity so much that it becomes impossible. And our own denomination, the Episcopal Church, seems to be caught up in that kind of a thing right now where dialogue has gone on for literally years and we seem to be further and further apart. It's almost like a, a game of capture the flag. The ones that get the flag are the winners and all the rest are losers. That is the sort of thing that does not bring peace or unity. Sometimes I think that the differences that developing congregations are just plain humorous. And there's a story about a certain synagogue that I think illustrates this. It could be any church, by the way. You'll recognize it immediately, I'm sure. It seems that there was a great dispute about whether people should sit or stand during the Shema, that great and holy prayer that goes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, one faction believed that it was very disrespectful 
to sit during the Shema. Now, there's another faction who thought that it was terribly disruptive if you stood during the Shema. So in this particular synagogue, every time the rabbi would intone Shema Yisrael, everybody broke out into an argument. The ones who were standing were being pulled down by the ones who were sitting. The ones standing were pulling up the ones who were sitting. Why can't these other people get it right? Why do they interrupt my worship? How can I possibly worship when people are doing this? Well, finally, this went on and on to the point where they decided a delegation needed to go to the rabbi and find out what the tradition was. They went to him and he said, as long as he had been a part of that particular synagogue, it had been a dispute. He had no idea what the real tradition was. So they, the delegation went on to the rabbi that preceded him. And they asked him, Rabbi, you have been a part of our synagogue. You had been for years and you know that there is a tradition about the Shema. Can you tell us what it is for our synagogue? And he thought and he thought and he said, I cannot remember. I just know it was always a difficult time in the service. And then not getting an answer, they decide to go to the rabbi that preceded that rabbi and ask the same question. And this wise old man who had long retired and had hoped he would not be asked any more trick questions. He thought for a moment and he said, well, it seems to me that we sat for the Shema. And then the ones that sat, of course, broke out and said, oh, this is wonderful. That's exactly what we should be doing. And then he said, but I think we also stood for the Shema. And then that group broke out in, in applause. We're so happy he had it right. And then he said, you know, our tradition during the Shema is to argue. <laughs> Sometimes, even around the most holy things, especially perhaps around the most holy things, we argue and we don't find peace and we don't find unity. And it, whether it's an expression of our human frailty and whether we experience it in our families or we experience it in the town, a town meeting, whether we experience it in our schools, in our classrooms, it's in all of our life, but it should not be in the church. I believe that the church is different from the rest of the world by one major thing, and that is that Christ is at the center. And that can also be true of our households. It's possible for Christ to be at the center of our households as well. And Christ stands at the center with at least two gifts, I think many more, but at least the gifts of peace and unity. But the problem that we have is that we have our hands so closely closed and so tightly held because we have our agenda. We have those things that are so important to us. And priests are no different from the laity when it comes to this, as you well know. We have even good things that we hold on to so closely that we cannot open our hands and receive the gifts of peace and unity. I believe that there may be a time in our congregation where we may know that we've got something very difficult that we've got to work through. And it's at that moment that we must hold on to one another. Even if we argue, if we debate with a certain amount of heat, we still must hold on to one another. We must listen to one another. We must be willing to open our hands 
and receive the gift of peace and the gift of unity. Today at our communion service, we're going to be privileged to have with us the children who have been a part of the communion class. And they will gather with their parents and with us and receive communion. And I think it's important for us to reflect for a moment on that as a time of unity. I've mentioned it before, I believe, in, in a sermon that there are two ways of understanding that. And it's ironic, it seems to me, that the churches are divided over communion, perhaps, more than anything else. There are two different ways of understanding it. The Roman Catholics and the Missouri Synod Lutherans and others who hold one view believe that you must first be in unity. And in fact, I would say that this is the, the view held by some of the archbishops in the uh, African church in the, in, the, in the Anglican communion. You must first be in unity or you should not share communion together. And for that reason, some of them did not receive communion at the same altar rail as our presiding bishop. But our view, the Anglican view, is that we come together, and in coming together, we form unity. We make unity. And I think that's a huge distinction, and one that we must remind ourselves of often. Because we will understand things differently. And we will hold different perspectives, even about what is important in communion. But when we come to the table together, when we gather around Christ at the center, we have unity at that point. In a few moments, we're going to be baptizing Mac. And Mac is another symbol, I think, another sign in the life of our, of our community of unity and of peace. Because we are called to receive Christ and to receive his teaching as a child. As a child, trusting and willing to go to the one that's at the center and to receive the gift that's being offered to us. I give thanks that we are a community that, at least at this time in our life, we have unity and we have peace. And I pray that we may always have that. And I believe that we will, as long as we recognize that there's not a priest at the center. There is not an ideology or a doctrine. There is simply Christ at the center. And that is who we gather around. And for that, we give God thanks and praise. Amen. Amen.